Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. Here we go, guys. We are live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, welcome. Here we are at the Gamekeeper Studio, the Mossy Oak Gamekeeper Podcast. I'm looking at Dudley. He looks mighty rested. Lanny's excited. We're glad to have Always. you back, Lanny. Ah, not, sorry, I've missed the last couple. Yeah. Which I've done a real good job without me. Well, I don't know. We missed you. Deer for season's sure. coming up, so you got, might get to miss me again. Well, yeah. We almost probably. added a, a sound thing that was your laugh. Ah, like the, uh, you talked about this, like the laugh in the sitcoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the canned laugh. Yeah, yeah. The canned yeah. Laugh. yeah. We do have a lot of yeah. laughter from you. Yes. And we got the boss sitting at the end of the table. Oh, oh. Yeah. Have you got all your plots in, Toxin? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most frustrating year of – I say that at least we have so much low country land. And yes. it's been so frustrating for almost – some places I got into and repaired roads and got access to a, a week or so ago that I hadn't been in on – Three years, maybe two and a half, three years. It's been that wet, but it's like all or nothing. I will say, by I, mean, I sent y'all a text uh, or pictures. I'm, I'm seeing more poults than I ever have, and hearing about more poults than I ever have. And I hear Adams, you know, pronounce his number for the state, and it's like tied with a record amount. So I mean, that's good. All in all, one of the things we stress out about a lot has going back in the right direction this year. I know it's a geographic thing. I'm seeing a lot on my camera. Yep. So. Sunshine. I, I sent you a right. video. Did you see the video on the back of a four-wheeler? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you pan over and there's a, yeah, a they field full of poles. Doing a kiki run. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, I mean, yeah. they didn't know I was in the I world. that sound. Mm. That, that was fun. Yeah. Well, so we've also got today, we've got uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland and Dr. Steve DeBarris. The A-team. Yeah, from yeah, Mississippi no State, the Deer Lab. And we, we've got a lot to talk about today with with, with deer and, and uh, the changes that are happening right now going from summer to fall and then eventually fall to winter. So we've got, we have we do have a lot that we want to talk about. So, But before we do that, Lanny, what are you – blood on the biologic, you seeing or hearing anything? Well, you know, the Mississippi velvet season was going on. Our own Tom Robertson Ooh. killed a stud. He I mean, did. He did. He really did. Down in uh, Wahalik. I don't know if I want to give specific locations. No, but you know where Wahala do is. That. Yeah. is. Is that a Kemper County? The that, Metropolis. That's yeah. an Indian name. What does that mean? Nick Knoxby Kemper line. Yeah, I don't know what Wahalik means. You've been trying to see. Does anybody know the story? Toxic, no. do you I know think he knew no. the deer was there. He had seen him. Yeah, oh, yeah. So he put the slip on him. Looks like. 
It did. A beautiful, big, beautiful deer. Big yeah. bull velvet. Yeah, congrats to he's, him. He's quiet. He's good. And then there's really this, uh, they killed, I mean, several big deer were killed. I know a, a guy in Madison killed, kind of killed a 150-inch a, a eight-point. Uh, his name was Benjamin Bell and got on bottom land, so. Well, look, well, you guys sitting here, what are y'all hearing about the velvet season? It, it, it sounds like it was a, like a really neat idea to me, and it sounds like a lot of people had success. Yeah. Uh, for, well, first of all, 150-inch eight-pointer. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. a really oh, yeah. 155. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the two, the twos on the left side of this thing are. I'm gonna bet you this one of Tom's was scaring that. Yeah, it was. Oh, he looked definitely real heavy, real heavy deer. Thought I interrupted you, Steve. Go well, ahead. I haven't heard the final numbers, but it, it, there was a requirement to report your harvest yes. for this season, and it's in the hundreds of animals. Wow. So, and I'm sure there's some that weren't reported. They forgot because it, it's hard to get in the habit anyway. But uh. That's good. So, is it a a slam dunk for that they'll do it again? Oh, yeah. I I think so, yeah. Yeah. And it's one of these things, it's not necessarily biologically required that we do it, but it's allowing an an extra opportunity for landowners and hunters to get that velvet buck harvested and on the wall because they really look cool. Well, you know, part of what we want to talk about these changes, that one of the questions that I plan to ask is, it seems like we see a deer in velvet, and then when he comes out of velvet, you might see him another couple of times, and then he's gone. He moves somewhere. So that I want to come back to that, but okay. but uh, yeah, it, what, uh, Dudley, you've got some. You had a friend that killed a uh, big deer didn't, with a uh, during this velvet season. You were talking about it the other day. I was. Uh, it seemed like you were. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, maybe you have. Maybe one. I was. Yeah, yeah, maybe. the size of his chestnut trees up here. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Well, uh, look, guys. But. This, oh, this, I, I, that's right. No, Dad, I do have a friend. You missed your yeah, chance. You don't so. have Dr. Moselle got a nice one with his longbow. Oh, during yeah. velvet season? Yeah, one of my dad's turkey hunting buddies. Okay. With a longbow. With a longbow. That mm. would be velvet Dave, buck. That would be Mr. David? Dr. David uh, Moselle. We him. call him Dr. Mo. Hmm. You know, that's tough. That the longbow, I don't think it's got the range that some no, of this other serious. archer equipment has. No doubt about it. you got to be into it to be shooting longbow. That reminds me of our old Spence Bungeen used yeah. to run Lee Haven, and he was, he was on. It's a great story. He loved to plink with his, and so there was a guy uh, that had been making a living off of cleaning the deer off of that lease the year before, you know, years before. So he was used to, like, hanging out there, and he would charge so much for skinning people's deer. So he came up there and was really worried about the new tenants because we were shooting bows. And so uh, it's really funny because Spence was out there in the yard <laughs> Planking targets with the longbow, and I guess he thought that's the way we were going to hunt, you know. And he watched him, and he watched him, and he said, "Mr. Spence, do you mind telling me how many deers you actually eat behind that boat?" <laughs> <laughs> and he was like so worried about the his you know skinning his, his skinning business going down, and of course Spence was throwing arrows everywhere with that longbow, just having fun with it. But I still remember that. How many deer do you actually eat behind that boat? <laughs> Not yeah. many. Wow. Yeah. So, guys, look, I'm looking at Toxie. So, if you uh, see Jim Cantori show up in your yeah, neighborhood, it's probably a, a bad sign. No, that's not a good sign yeah, ever. So, we yeah, want to get about those guys yeah, the people in Florida, and I think oh now it's going gosh. to Georgia and South Carolina. Our hearts are with you there. Yeah. Oh, it's so bad in Florida. So, Bronson, so a storm like this, though, uh, over time, it would. How, how does it affect the habitat for, mm. for deer and turkeys? It would be, uh, of course. Oh, gosh. It depends, right? Yeah. Of course. Right, Al. Right there, it's going to depend on how severe it is. So, yeah, if it's uh, if it's severe in terms of looking like a tornado, 
and it's disrupting the tree canopy and all that. Then, like Katrina did. Yeah, exactly. That was a, that was a rough one. Or Ivan, yeah. too. Ivan, yeah. mm-hmm. Ivan was bad, bad for a long ways yeah, inland. Sure was. But there's going to be a great response, you know, on down the road, years down the road. You're going to get a lot of cover and a, good, a lot of good food that normally you wouldn't have. So kind of maybe look at the bright spot next year and the year after. It's going to create a lot of habitat. Yeah. It's got to be rough on those animals, though, and – when oh, yeah. you see this on television, how bad the weather is, that's just it's amazing. They hunker down. But they're resilient. Yeah. I've got a buddy that's got some land uh, on the other side of Panama City where that hurricane went through, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And the some, one that went through uh, Mexico City? Yes, Fort yes. St. Joe? Um, yeah. I want to say, is there a Calhoun County around there? But the deer pictures he's been sending me, uh, it's amazing. You you wouldn't believe it was Florida. Yeah. You right. know, uh the response, all the food, you know, just used to be a bunch of closed canopy, right. some junk. Mm-hmm. And, and that's uh, the key, Dudley. You, you take a closed canopy and you open it up however you open it with disturbance. Mm-hmm. You're going to get light <laughs> on the ground and more food. Right. But, you know, down south of Tampa where this thing hit, Oof. I don't know personally, it was a, I don't know that there's closed canopy trees there or what the well not a not a high percentage of it it'll be interesting a lot of orange groves and stuff like that probably but yeah definitely what what it does do it gives them sanctuaries because if if you can't get in harvest and salvage some of the timber it's such a mangled mess you can't even really i've done it where a tornado's come through twice and take my dozer and just try to open a row back up and it's so hard to do because stuff snaps off six eight feet off the ground you can't even get a dozer blade up to that maybe with a track hoe you could grab some of that but if they're big trees you can't move them so it it really creates almost a a big sanctuary for them if they can access the cover behind something like that yeah and it's kind of a two-pronged effect here you almost have to take our word for it that it's going to be good because uh, you're not going to be able to see the deer they're going to have more cover they're going to have more food so you're not going to see the deer and you're going to wonder, well, th- this was a bad effect, but it really is good because the the more food they have, the less they see. Absolutely. One, mm-hmm. well, my my main, I said it at a deal 35 years ago. I was sitting there with Bob Dixon at a store promotion thing. They were asking people about, you know, whitetail questions and whatever. What's your, you know, what's your philosophy things? And I said, I've always kind of gone by, you know, if he ain't there, you can't kill him. And they're like, what? I was like, you know, it seems like if he's not there, you're going to have a hard time killing him. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I said, well, it seems like we got to let him grow up and get more age on him. And, you know, he looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I thought you were going to give us your rattling technique or how you pattern <laughs> white tails. Well, I mean, that's kind of the whole gamekeeper thing anyway. That's what he's saying to me. That's right. If he's not there, yeah. you don't. He, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be hard to hunt. Yes, it is. <laughs> so let's just jump in here with the first question right out of the gate. And, uh, I'm looking at both y'all. Bronson, I'm going to go to you first. But right now, we're just transitioning from a summer pattern here in Mississippi and most of the south to the, the where our deer are just now starting to shed. I'm seeing last night I saw deer that had velvet, and I've also saw deer that were just fresh out of hard, and they were fr- hard horns. So mm-hmm. what's good? let's talk about that transition, if you will. Well, we've got two changes that are going on. we got the, the landscape is changing. And the, the deer, and in this case, a buck's physiology is changing. So some of the photos we get all the time are not just antler photos, but we get the what's wrong with my deer photo. And a lot of, think of all the pellage or the changes mm-hmm. in the hair coat mm-hmm. photos we get. The so nighttime the, photos, they look like something's really wrong with the 
partial summer coat, mm-hmm. winter coat coming in. It's yeah. like, I've done that before. And like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with them? Right. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. And it's usually, does my deer have mange? Yes. Mark, you know, like, or no, kind of partially, it, depending on the picture and the sheen on those night images, it, oh, my gosh, it's a, a pieball deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? yeah. Right. Right. So they're doing that. They're, they're changing their coat. They're getting ready for colder weather. Of, of course, testosterone levels are up. Um, the, the velvet is, is shedding and coming off, and so they are going to be uh, a viable breeder here in the next few weeks. And th- this process with antler shedding, you know, it happens pretty quick. Like one of our bucks in the deer pens, it was within about three days. Hmm. He went from it just beginning on the tips of the tines to being completely mm-hmm. shed. And Steve has evidence over the years of uh, seeing particular bucks over time and how reliable it is. And the one that, that I'm referring to, uh, our graduate student Luke said it was about a week earlier last year, and the year before it was a few days. But the bottom line, over three to four years, within one week's time, he, he's reliable shedding at that time. His yeah, velvet. They tend to be more reliable in terms of their timing of shedding of velvet. than uh, doe, Does tend to have similar breeding dates, but there's a lot more going on nutritionally and stress and physiologically with the does that could impact exactly when she's going to uh, ovulate and be mm-hmm. bred. But the bucks, they're just, they're just hanging out during the summertime, growing antlers in their bachelor groups and you know, swatting some flies. Right? Oh, my goodness. The flies have been bad this year. So, so do you all see that the bucks eat that velvet once they scrape it off? Oh, it's yeah. laying there on the ground? Well, they'll eat it off of each other. You're, wow. You still – usually have bachelor groups still together oh, when yeah. they're shedding yeah. and they're just eating it off because it's a great source of protein hmm. and that what? helps strip it off. Is it skin? Is it hair? What is it? Yes. Huh. Yes. It, there we go. Smoke. That's right. It's hair. It's hair. It's hair. It's hair. skin. Exactly. And wow. uh, tastes like chicken. <laughs> Had to say it. Yeah. Deer are always looking for that, the, the nutrients that are easily available. Mm-hmm. And so like in this case, but it's really astounding when you see a doe, after she's had a fawn and then eat her after birth oh, yeah. as well. And you're thinking about this herbivore. An herbivore is not going to do that. And she'll <clears> grab <throat> that mass of flesh and mm-hmm. gobble Down it up. It goes. You think part of that's a instinctive thing over time? Yeah. And evolution to, to protect, yeah. you know, like leave a mm-hmm. more sense. Leave, trace. Yeah, exactly. leave no trace. Mm-hmm. Because I think dogs that. do that too. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, all biologists, all deer biologists, and probably I'm, I'm going to bet all four of you have – eaten acorns before oh yeah i've never eaten antler velvet i've no. never tried it never no. had the urge to do it mm. although there's a big market for it yeah there's a yeah, there's, there's like sprays product, and stuff that's there right are. you might yeah well well <laughs> wait a minute wait hey that could be a we can make that happen <laughs> so in that, bi- in that biologically one of the things about velvet antler is a medicinal thing that's the fastest growing tissue in the animal kingdom yeah, or whatever. yeah the uh the Asian cultures use oh, yeah. a lot of, of dried velvet. They actually harvest growing antlers yeah. and, and um, use red deer and, and harvest it about a third of the way out. Well, and, the uh, huh. New Zealand people, we when we started the whole premise behind the biologic and the mm-hmm. seed was the New Zealand seed that were bred for 20 years specifically for the way deer digest as opposed to, you know, the leftover cattle forages we had here. But they said that, you know, Part of what they bred for was antler production because I want to say at that time 40, it was 40% of the revenue 
from the deer came from the velvet antler. Hundred dollars so, a pound. Yeah, and I think yeah, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, that's right. About forty percent of it, I think they said. Yeah. I don't know what it is now, but uh, it, it's still all they could produce. They could sell, and they they'd harvest them at a certain time and yeah. cut it's, them off the whole antler. It's a great natural resource because it's harvestable every year. Yeah, hmm. as opposed to you know some of the Asian medicines involved like bear bile and right. uh, gallbladders and you get a one-time shot. Sure yeah. Somebody has to make a commitment to that one. Yeah, right? that's the whole. <laughs> so that was one they were, they were especially mindful of the phosphorus and calcium needed to rebuild that every year. And uh, I remember them talking about, well, just when we talk about it here, it's a good analogy for people. It's like if you had to cut your leg off at the knees or maybe even higher and grow it back every year, how much extra you'd have to have, Yeah, you know, to, to do that. And so why that's so important in antler production. And, and so that that's grow, why these seeds are so popular, I believe. That growing antler is chocked full of hormones that are geared towards promoting the cellular replication and the growth of the antler. It's wow. a larger, larger antler growing an inch a week. Wow. Um, that's huge, wow. rap, rapid growth. And so the hormones in there, uh, there's a growth hormone. You've probably heard of growth hormone mm-hmm. for H- humans. HGH. Yeah, yeah, human growth hormone. Well, there's growth hormones, of several of them, and they're really concentrated in the velvet antlers. And so there's a, a real physiological basis wow. for it being of benefit in some way. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy velvet antler material from right. Asian sources, right. but they're bound to be packed full of Something's in there. good stuff. Yeah. Bobby gets his on eBay. Yeah, he does. <laughs> He's just spraying it under his tongue. That's why he looks yeah. so good. It's the beard. That's why, yeah. where the beard came from. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about these changes in the animals this time of year. What's going on in the woods? Well, we, we've got a change in seasons, for, first of all. But, but think of uh, what we would call the growing season or the warm season. That, that's coming to an end. And so you can look. Dudley, like driving over here, I'm seeing all the goldenrod and, yeah, and the plume everywhere. grass and all these colors are so beautiful. Um, but but the quality of those plants is now at a, a seasonal low. Oof. So they were in real they were really palatable and nutritious back in the springtime in May and June, but they're in really poor shape now. Right now. And so now we have cool season plants are, are starting to to grow and develop, and so it's just gonna be uh, a shift in diet. And typically, diet quality for deer. And and one thing is we just don't get the same amount of forage biomass production no. in, in the cool season than you do in the warm season. Why food plots done right are so yeah. important. And yep. acorns. So, oh uh, what? Acorns. What would you say acorns. would be the worst acorns. month in, in the south uh, as far as, you know, the, the shift from warm to cool? I'll get and then, and then again in the north. North would be tricky for me. I might have to go to someone with more northern heritage for that. I <laughs> I would say in the south, though, my vote would be September, mm-hmm. October. That's what I was right now. Would be the worst. Yeah, most yeah. challenging time. Yeah. especially in, we're in kind of a drought now. Right, it's gonna make yeah. it worse. Yeah, and getting food plots off the ground, and you know, we're just not mm-hmm. in fully into the the cool or cold season mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Mass production has not really ramped up yet, so. We've got a we got a deficit there yeah. for a good month. BCP, yeah. Well, so so looking at the north, wouldn't that be like in February, and March? Yeah, the the winter is the Grim Reaper in the north. Okay, and it's a very distinct time. Now they're going to have the seasonal decline in plant quality in the summer as well. But you know, in the world of living in the north, your deer are 
they don't really think about it, but they're programmed to worry more about the winter than they are in the summertime. Well, they also can get the double whammy of it not only being not much food, but it could be covered up with two foot of snow or something too. Yeah, and the yeah. thermo cost for thermoregulation, yep. maintain their body temperature. While they've evolved to be bigger bodied, I'm sure. And I guess yeah. their season changes over more quickly from summer to, to winter, basically. Yeah, although, boy, my temperature sure got cool about two days ago, didn't they? Yeah. Yes. It felt good. You can see the difference, I mean, uh, from being out a lot this year. Uh, the the changes in just the last couple of days, really, mm-hmm. four or five days, mm-hmm. and even the activity and going through places that have big, mature timbers, beautiful. But I barely see anything uh, in the summer. And I just like deer and hogs and stuff running, turkeys everywhere. They've already started to migrate to, uh, it looks like, Delhi, a earlier small acre yeah. drop for whatever reason. I don't know why that would be, but there's more water willow, small acorns Little draining down. Little aborts and things, probably from, in, you know, insects. And could be, but, I, you know, it wasn't aborts because they were eating them, and I cracked a couple of Dudley style, and they had meat in them, so for some reason they're falling a little earlier. But it's amazing how quickly, I guess the older animals already know what to do that time of year, and then as soon as they find the first ones, it's like a they'll shift. Oh, yeah. That's what I've way. been saying too. When the Spartans been lighting it up, we've talked about it here, but you know that deer that Jordan killed, it it probably migrated two miles from summer. We to... had pictures of two and a half miles away. Didn't mm-hmm. Yeah, I picked the wrong stand that morning. <laughs> it just always happens to me. Picked it wrong by two miles. Yeah. and they'll really shift for the right acre because that keeps on feeding them for a while. It's not like mm-hmm. one little hit and it's over. You know. Yeah. So we th- this time of year we usually our food plots are up now we've you know you might they might have a good green five o'clock shadow across them or a couple of inches of growth here at the first part of October that this year we're a little behind but we always see see deer key in on especially cereal grains just as soon as they come up and is there some is it because of this deficit or is there something super attractive about the plants at that time of year or both? Well, I, I think it's a little bit of both. Did I, I answer my own question there? Because I, I mean, You, you kind of did, <laughs> but, I, but I'll add a little bit to it. So um, first of all, they're attracted to it because it is growing. It is actively growing, which, which means uh, the, the digestibility of it is going to be a lot greater. The nutrition like crude protein, mineral content is greater in, in that growing tissue. And then like we were saying a second ago, it's just that time of year, the availability. So it's, it's a really good plant. It's a really good time of year for, for the nutrition of it. And then what's available on the landscape as well. And, and that's precisely what we've seen in our studies is cereal grains earlier in the year are very, very attractive. But as they mature now, things change, don't they? Th- things will change, but that's, again, we've covered many times. That's why with a mixture within your food plot and staggering that with right. quick growing plants, slower developing plants, those other plants catch up and they go through that growth process a little bit later. And so attraction will, will vary with that. Yeah. We've always, uh, you know, through the years, I can remember people would be so proud when their food plot was just kind of eating to the ground. And we've always said, no. no, that's not what you want at all. Right. right. And that's, that's kind of it, it's it's so important that you we, we kind of look at that food plot as maybe use the word like storing groceries for the future. I mean, if it's if you can feed that deer all the way through the, the through the winter, then you've accomplished something. And, and I think it's also a change in philosophy. And what I'm about to say, someone say, you know, well, uh, it's not wrong to do this or think about it, but I think you're missing an opportunity. Is a food plot attracts deer, 
and we hunt deer. And so as long as we're attracting deer during the deer season, but we're also don't miss the opportunity for the nutrition side of it. And then Bobby circling back to what you say, if, if, you know, it's browsed down to the ground, you may still be attracting some deer, but, but you're not providing the nutrition that you want to that time of year, which is important right now and getting through winter. And then it's also important when spring rolls around for them being in good condition to take advantage of the growth that's going to come in the spring and summer. So, you know, add more acreage or make sure your soil is amended, make sure the plot grows well and kill some deer. Yep. Yeah, that's another thing too. But uh, I'll add to that though, even if they do the double negative, if they do eat it to the ground, you might look like a glaze of green, but you're not going to attract as many deer. I spent a lot of times I've had cameras. I'm, a lot of people are taking hunting and you're, you're, attractiveness to get a mature deer in a food plot during daylight drops dramatically when a food plot's eaten all the way down to the ground because he wants to go get a belly full and not have to you know lip high get just a few little morsels and stuff so they you just yeah. don't it isn't attractive enough uh you know on top of what you're talking about it's one of the one of the best times to for a mature deer is very very late rut and they're you know one that's probably the first time in a week or two they hadn't been right with a doe. They can't find one, so they're frantically moving, and they're starving for what they put themselves through. If you have really good quality, you know, food right there, oh, wow, it's incredible. You're making a really good case to go ahead and shoot your does early. Oh, for sure. It, and I, I don't think Why everybody – Why would you not? Why would you not? Yeah, you know? I, I mean, I, th- I, I it, it makes a lot of sense, but I, I know it's a, it can be a lot of work, and a lot of guys want to put it off. and but, Right. So – I don't know that there is a right answer, but it sure, Jedley, what, what are your thoughts there? Uh, just do it when you can. It, it seems like more often than not, uh, we end up playing catch up. Always. And I wait till the very <laughs> end. All y'all need to do is carry There's Hayden no with you. You don't have to worry about it. Some of the people I know that have been very successful will actually have opening day, opening weekend, as soon as they can, doe hunts. Go ahead and just invite a ton of people that you know you can trust and – just hammer them and they feel like a it does it makes your rut better it makes the no winter makes food better it's healthier mm-hmm. for the herd but also it's better for your deer hunting not to nip at them all the time and those same people and it's just been a couple they're very successful at it they prohibited people shooting does in the food plots in the afternoons mm-hmm. and swore up and down that made a big difference that you weren't just you know just think of they don't take much to avoid right you know what's going on so the least little thing you can do helps a ton so i you know why i hate the thought of just chaos on my place for a couple days get it over with probably is really healthy early on so you guys are both nodding your head have y'all got any anything to add to that to help a guy understand the best way to manage for the the steve why don't you tell him about the the three-day effect from your study in oklahoma oh sure uh hunting effects on deer behavior. We did a study in Oklahoma and after three days of intensive hunting opening weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the deer significantly altered their behavior just after that three day opening weekend. So it doesn't take them long to learn. So I agree a hundred percent with what Toxie's talking about here is get it done early and, uh, get all your animals removed as soon as possible and then let things calm down so that when it comes to rut, you, you know, some people say, well, I want all my does on the, on the, on the 
food plots on the property during the rut, so bring in the bucks. Well, yeah, but then you'll never get those does harvested. Well, not only that, you're going to see more bucks if you have a lower number of does yep. because they're going to have further. to. I mean, yep. to me, y'all correct me if I'm wrong. It's not seeing chance of seeing a good deer in the rut isn't about how many does. It's about how much he actually has to travel to find them. And, you know, the more they travel, the more chance you have of seeing them. And I've always noticed much more dramatic ruts, much more activity early. Deer moving a lot more when we harvested our does down. Way better. And it's also a good time to get rid of some of your your lower quality uh, age-specific. Right based males too mm-hmm. get, get them off get you sure know, if you're in a culling program you, you're knowledgeable hunters you know what they're looking at get some of those because it's all about population control that's what you're doing and then you've got the, the hunting for the trophy animals during the rut the older mature males it, it not, makes a lot of sense the bucks for genetic improvement no, we're not you're, you're culling for food yeah, the same reason we the are. Same reason but i mean hey if you have the choice and there you got a you know a Four-year-old with cow horn spikes still on it, and a two-year-old ten-point out front. Of, yeah, shoot the. Don't shoot the two-year-old ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's you. right. Yeah, yeah. The, but, Dudley, you want to tell about this deer over here behind you? Oh, the two-year-old ten. Oh, my, <laughs> my three-year-old twelve-point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's been crying about that since the day he killed it. <laughs> so so Dud- Dudley killed a Boone and Crockett. Just a couple years too early. A couple years too early. Yeah. So let me ask this, Bronson. You you deal with a lot of landowners across the state. Are guys using these? I mean, what do y'all know about these suppressors uh, on mm-hmm. a, on a rifle like a sub and shooting subsonic? Is it quiet enough that it helps take the pressure off a of property there? Uh, I've had a lot of conversations, but I don't have any data. And the conversations are always very very positive at least in their perceptions of how the deer react to shots and so forth but i mean you, you're still going to disturb the deer mm-hmm. you question know, you, about it you still got to go to the plot and drag that, it out and all that i think that's like more disturbance than that nothing disturbs deer more than human that's scent. exactly yeah. right human sighting is even behind right. that human sense so i mean but that's way more disturbing than the shot the sound of a shot going off mm-hmm. I so i think more of it would be i didn't maybe the deer in the food plot didn't get quite as spooked by that but you still if they're still there you got to walk out there and deal with the deer you know i mean so yeah. here's the, the way i think about it like that toxie is we've all been on a food plot before and shot a doe and typically it's a larger plot but you shoot the deer, it goes down, and there's four or five, how many other deer that focus their attention, they look over there and go right back to feeding. Mm-hmm. That, to me, demonstrates that it's not just that immediate loud sound that may sound like thunder to a deer, but then you follow it up with the human disturbance of it's still daylight and you get out of the stand and go over there. I think it's the people mm-hmm. being on the plot that's worse. No question. And I agree. And it's even in, even in a... A bow stand hunting acres, or if you're, you know, whatever. Now you can hunt over a feeder. If you're hunting over food in an afternoon, it's almost impossible to hunt without spooking. I mean, if there's a mature buck using that food, he's not far away. You might not see him. You may think he's not. He's not far away right at dark, even if he's not there. And I think it's almost impossible for you to get out of there without sounding an alarm. And I always used to say, and I'm not just sitting data driven, but I think it's like, Half, half again harder 
every time you bump a deer. So if it you had a hundred percent chance of seeing him, he goes to fifty, <clears throat> it goes to twenty five, it goes to almost zero if you bump him much more than that. Mm-hmm. And you know that's the delicate thing about hunting at a food source, a food plot, or where acorns are falling, or a feeder, or whatever it is. You got to be so careful about how you do that. Yeah, well, we talk about it all the time. It's food, water, cover, and pressure. I mean, that's the the fourth. But element. they, you know, they might be passing by to go to water. If right. you got a travel stand where you got, you know, where there's some, you know, pinch points or a funnel or forced travel or just some deer migrate. You know, from if. The problem in our area is that sometimes the bedding and the feeding are so mixed up, there's not a defined one. But if you find one of those places, they're like gold. Don't tell your buddies about it. <laughs> Keep it quiet. You can hunt travel quarters so much more than you can hunting at a food source. Yet, no we all want to hunt a food source, including mm-hmm. me. It's I catch myself it's doing it. easy thing to do. Yeah, and it's, and it's usually a waste, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, you're right. Early or, on, yeah. it opens or you what, just Saturday. Have to- Early on, yeah, but then you've you've kind of burned your chances there for a while when you spook them. Yeah, we had a you can you can shoot does in that first weekend, and it's going to vary from state to state. But our bigger food plots, we would shoot does early on, and then it would be no does until after the rut. But we would shoot does in the woods and on the perimeters of things, right. and, and try not to disturb the place as much. Oh, I also it remember to work. some people that were successful. Not calling names, they had one. One was like it was a point system, and you had to get a hundred points before you could shoot a buck. And boy, that changed things. Like a coyote was bobcat, and does were like I don't know, I forgot how many points they were. It added all up. Uh, another person I know lets people like you know he he's got several bucks to let other people shoot. You know he's got a pretty big place, and he's like until you kill your limit of does, you cannot shoot a buck. And that'll get your does killed Absolutely. fast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. There's um, there's even a couple of WMAs that that have that rule. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They call it the earner buck. The earner buck. It's amazing how much more efficient people get at shooting their does when you hang the buck out in front of It'll them. It'll incentivize you real quick. Or like I said, you could just take Hayden with you and he'll mow them off. <laughs> Hayden is uh, he's more than willing, isn't he? <laughs> Man, he's at that age. I can remember when mine were that age. They like, like to stack them up. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, Dudley, you're thumping the plate. I'm, I'm getting antsy to get getting back to talking about what happens in the progression of yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's right now, yeah. yeah, warm season to cool. Season. So, uh, with with that said, have you got a specific question you want to ask? No. I, well, yes. <laughs> what? Well, ask what on. is the um, what is the typical thing that, that deer hunt and hone in on uh, once the warm season stuff fades in most parts of the country? I'm going to have to do the Jerry Clower saying again, Steve, like we did the other day. That This it answer dep- is so simple. I'm going to let my chauffeur here, mm. Steve Damaris, answer. <laughs> well, it's you've got a lot of moving parts there, Dudley. You've got the, the changing biology of the animal as – in complement with the changing biology of the plants and, and the senescence of the warm season plants and the early growth of the cool season plants. And and you've got increased movement after the velvet sh- uh, shedding is completed. They're, they're starting to spread out across the landscape. So there's a lot of moving parts. It's hard to say this right. is going to fix that problem. You can't really fix that problem. It's, it's deer behavior and the physiology of the plants. But what we have just to is understand that there is a problem at this point and there's going to be a transition and um, your, your early mast crop 
trees and your fruit trees can be a great value in attracting animals during this time period if uh, you know if you don't have the good food plot growth coming on and and the, the value uh, we were talking earlier about uh, a mix on a food plot the value there too is is the quality of the plant is plants are changing throughout the season you also uh, have the opportunity that the deer can then select the particular plant, even if it might not be the most valuable nutritionally, it might be providing something to their needs. And the animals have a lot of nutritional wisdom. And that's why we push so much diversify your habitat. And if you give them enough variety, they're going to find whatever they need by themselves. Uh, we can't always just you know, pour it out of a bag. We try to grow it with food plots, but if we and we complement that with a, a well-managed natural habitat, then they're gonna they're gonna meet whatever they need. They're gonna find it. Uh, I heard Toxie mention it one time, and it's it's a good layman's terms way of of saying it. It's deer's and and other animals. Their brain is more connected to their stomach than mm-hmm. than with humans. Yep. Except during that couple of weeks. Leading up to and after the rut. Or humans get like that yeah. too sometimes in life. <laughs> <laughs> that's that aphrodisiac stuff coming out. Dudley, I was joking that that's about the simple question. I don't think that's a simple question at right. all. I think it's very, very complex. And uh, uh, another part too, Steve, is going to be the, the social hierarchy among those bucks and how they've set it up. And what we've seen, you know, during the summertime, you've got this bachelor group of bucks and then they start breaking up right now or before and and they're kind of going back to these places that they have established and I I don't think they're going back for one specific thing I think it's they had history in that area and they lived so you got to live through it and there was the good collection of food and cover and breeding opportunities and then risk in terms of human disturbance all that is playing a role from year to year for those bucks when they're going back to particular places. It's interesting how, you know, with this these collared studies, how close they are to the same day. Right. Going to different places every yeah. year. It's fascinating. Back and and some of them go a lot further. Some don't go far at all, and some will go 18 miles and swim a river yeah. twice wow. a year to yeah. do it. Yeah, that buck that we uh, collared two years ago, he's – in March, he swam to Louisiana. In August, he swam back. The next March, he swam back to Louisiana. Spent the summer, August. Within a week, swam back again. And then his collar died. So we don't know about the third year. But I we bet had... he went back. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he came back to Mississippi before his collar died. So yeah. we completed the cycle twice. And we had another buck that uh, did a similar uh, shift in roughly the same time frame. August and February was was his movement dates, and uh, you know you think, well, is it is he looking for some food or something, or is there you know, is he afraid? You know, I joke that you know that they want to get out of Mississippi or they want to get out of Louisiana because of, of relative hunting effectiveness, uh, but it's really it's hard to pin it down to a specific thing because uh, that buck that moved thirteen miles and he had great habitat where he was and he went to another property that had great habitat so he didn't change what he was getting by shifting his he just did it because he needed to and i think there's a lot of uh benefit in a deer population to have some risk takers 
just like humans, there's some a lot of people that aren't risk takers and they succeed and they do their thing, but then there's some risk takers that you know really do well. And there's some risk takers that fall and, and don't do so well at all. But mm-hmm. having that risk as a percentage of the population is valuable in a deer population. And that's why we have these deer that do strange stuff. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And as a public service announcement, would you guys and would you suspect that other universities that are doing research, y'all don't want somebody to shoot a deer with a collar if they encounter him, do you? Good question. Generally, no. But we have uh, kind of put the, the hit uh, word out for our collared deer here in Mississippi this year. We've got some up in North Mississippi and Benton County and some down in the lower uh, delta around Issaquena County. Uh, the collars are dying this fall, and they should fall off, but not all the time. You know, sometimes collar malfunctions. So we would like to get those collars back. We also ask that uh, especially these deer that have been like swimming the Mississippi River and making these big movements. We had a doe uh, that moved 26 miles this wow. past year. Wow. Man. Can you, can you determine why at all? Food? No. I mean, the example I just gave about the buck doing 13 miles, the habitats were the same, same well, well, well-managed habitat. So this doe moved uh, in, in the lower delta there, possibly timed into flooding. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, mm. It's flooding factor there, but <clears throat> these deer, like the one that swam in the Mississippi River, he wasn't afraid of water. No. <laughs> yeah. He swam a mile across a really <laughs> deep, fast-moving river. So it wasn't just water, but there are patterns of environmental change that, again, these risk-takers can take advantage of, and uh, water is probably a factor in in that lower Mississippi River. Yeah, valley. I think so. You know, nature has a way of, I mean, you think about how, you know, deer were here and then we didn't have any deer and then they were in this area and this area. And they, the population spread, so there's probably something instinctive in the species to have a certain percentage of, you know, risk-takers, travelers, because that mm-hmm. spreads the population. That's how you colonize and find new areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every, every, you used to say every tree is a snowflake, but mm-hmm. you know, every every deer is an individual as well. Mm-hmm. It's I, I find it very fascinating and frustrating as well that you can watch a deer all summer long, and then round about this time of year, he's going to be gone. That's right. And then where did he go? And that when the rut's over, <laughs> same way might, with turkeys too. He might come back. Turkeys are the same way. I feel like, and I'd always been told that. There was just only so many like mature, active goblin turkeys that will can exist coexist regardless of what they've got to eat or the number of hens or anything. And I feel like that's a little bit of the same way with deer too, because they get that by the time. Correct me if I'm wrong. By the time this rolls around, not much longer into the year, they've been living together all summer or longer, and they know what the pecking order is. So maybe there's a challenge at the top, or somebody new comes in, but. The ones not at the, that are not the king of the mountain are going to get the heck out of there and find them a place where they're not getting their tail whipped all the time, you know. So they spread out. Who knows what determines, but I'm sure the king of the mountain decides what the pick of the spots are, but they spread out. Yeah. Lanny, have you got a question for these guys? Well, I really wanted to ask them what the velvet was, but they already answered that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they did. So let's let's think about this now. So it won't be much for longer. We'll be going through another transition from the fall 
into into the winter. And I wanted y'all to talk a little bit. And uh, Toxie and Dudley, y'all have all got some in, some input here as to just how important acorns are to the overall landscape in the in the late fall and winter. It depends on where you are. In some areas of the country, Appalachian Mountains, Central Texas, uh, acorns determine the the fawn crop and the overwinter survival. And uh, they're hugely important. And particularly in those areas that I just mentioned, you don't have a really good forage base right. the rest of the year. So it's if it's a good acorn crop, they're going to go into winter well, and, and they'll, they'll produce uh, babies well that winter. And then the males will be in good condition in the spring if there's spring rain to uh, eat adequate food to, to grow good antlers. So it's a huge driver in some areas. Here, acorns are important because the deer love them and they're going to go to them. But here, uh, we have a more stable year-round browse and, and forb community than some other places. So in, in terms of where they're most important, it's like places like the Appalachians and <laughs> Central Texas, criti cri critically, critically important. Here, they're great, uh, kind of like dessert in, in, in your meal. I mean, Ice cream. Yeah, it's the ice cream that the deer love and they're gonna benefit from it. They're gonna fatten up wonderfully. But um, they're not gonna be starving it through the late winter here. Because the late winter that's up north doesn't exist here. Right. So. Yeah, we, yeah. We want it to be icing on the cake. And so, like Steve was saying, you know, years ago when we studied those populations of learning about it in school, I mean, there was actually a name for it called a, a mast dependent or acorn dependent mm -hmm. deer population, hmm. meaning that that's the single most important variable in body weight, antler size, fawn production, survival, everything. It was dependent on an acorn crop and how good it was. But around here, it's just, it is a wonderful opportunity when we have it to supplement right. all, all the other forage just provided. And deer are going to be in good condition. So it's safe to say that I mean, a good mass crop could, I mean, um, uh, it could it'd be the determining factor on, I mean, the difference in quality of the deer herd from year to year here. I wouldn't say so much here. But if I mean, with, with a great mass crop, then could you expect to have a healthier deer herd? Yes, yeah. I would say so. I would say you're going to see it in body weights, mm -hmm. and right. specifically when, when you're skinning the deer, you're going to see it in the fat. fat. Absolutely. Yeah. But, on, but the, it, it, on the flip side, as much as I love you know oak trees, it's like my favorite thing in the world, but there's areas in the country that grow huge and healthy deer that have never seen an oak never tree. Yeah, I mean, there, I don't think it has a lot to do with, like, antler production at all. No. Maybe they're Just a little bit better shape coming out of winter might help some, but, you know, acres aren't chock full of, you know, whatever, phosphorus, calcium, and the things to put on antlers that you need. Yeah. Um, so, Nor do they fall at that time of year. Right. Should, you know? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's like rock, you know, it's candy. To yeah, them. It's and they love it, you know. And, and Bobby, back to your your questions about the seasonality and the changes, you know, what they need is all a function of what they're doing physiologically in their bodies and, and their their nutritional demands. And so, uh, acorns are great for bucks going into the rut. They can help fatten up, and they won't lose as much uh, as they might in another year if they didn't have as good an acorn crop. But what's important to the buck is that post-rut recovery time period after he drops his antlers. That, that, think of that 
that dropped spot on their pedicle where it's basically an open wound. Mm. And if they don't have good nutrition, right. you're not going to be able to recover from that injury. It's essentially an injury. It's a, it's bleeding, two bleeding wounds on top of their heads. And that's when they need that post-rut recovery nutrition. I'm, I'm not trying to push uh, food plot blends, but back to the blends. Yeah. That's, right, that's yeah. why it's important. We to love have. food plot blends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's why it's important to have a blend that includes yeah. that late winter, early mm-hmm. spring, uh, really good quality forage in it. Yeah, we often talk about that's the most neglected time of year. Oh, no question. Because everybody it. just quits hunting. And well, they away. don't want to yeah. plant something. Let's just say you have something. Most likely, if it's going to survive almost anywhere in the United States, even in a lightly you know, a dense herd, it, it's probably not real palatable or, or great tasting or whatever early in the season. So the nobody, you know, people have tried something. Oh, deer don't eat it. I'm not, I mean, I'm not planting that anymore. Well, that's probably what you need because likely that is going to be the only thing and feed them in really late season when they need it. And not only if the season's still open right at the tail end, if you have it, your hunting's going to be so much better. But I just think it, it, it gets overlooked for that reason. Oh, I've tried that deer, don't eat it. Wow, I'm like, in the density of our herd in some place, I'm like, great news, they didn't eat it. You know? And, well, uh, a, you know, another good reason to do soil tests yes. and get the pH right. Uh, I've learned this the hard way myself. You know, that critical time when they do need that, that new growth in the late winter and early spring, if you don't get your soil right, that stuff's going to yellow up yep. before it even really gets cold. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so if you're not going to do it right, don't do it. Yeah, and I've, I've probably offended more hunters in, in my professional career than, than certainly than Bronson has because he's <laughs> a lot nicer guy than I am. But, you know, the average hunter that thinks all, all about what they can see on their food plot in November, December is missing the boat. Yep. It's all about what is available for the does during late gestation, late, you know, being pregnant, and then those first two or three months after they give birth. That's critical to the health of the deer herd and the condition of the food supply when the bucks drop their antlers. Is what you provide them during that November, December, when the bucks, they're not eating as much anyway. They're going to lose weight. Even in a, a f- research facility with full ration, high-quality food available, they're going to lose 25% of their body weight. Wow. You can't fix that problem. Don't worry about fixing that problem. Worry about August, September, October, and Jan, Jan, late January, February, before green up. That's the areas that you need to work I on. I sound like a broken record, Bobby, but as he talks about that, it just, again and again, I'm... I'm Clover. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it fixes all those yeah, problems. Yeah, yeah. And now, that's not, I'm saying that's all you need to do. But ideally, that's the first thing you need to do because I looked at it, even now, it, and I keep saying this, some of us going into the third year, so that's what, almost 36 straight months, every single day they can get up and get something to eat, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a, you know, like the one at the cabin, that's yeah. like 20 acres. And right now with this drought and the acorns barely started falling and there's really no food plots to, you wouldn't believe the deer that are living mm-hmm. off of that right now. It's so good for them to be able to, you know, as a baseline at least to have that to eat every day. So I'm, I'm fixing to blow y'all's mind here with this. I mean, y'all all know Bobby Watkins. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, got a green thumb, can grow stuff like he came by here a couple of days ago. Dudley witnessed mm-hmm. this. 
He told me the clover plots that he planted that we gave him for the biologic challenge 20 years ago still are boy. still alive and producing you know, to this day. That's Good awesome. Grief. 20 that's years. Better than Kenny. Yeah. 20 so, years. So, he has yes. tended to them, but I'll say he this. He's tended to them, yes. Some of this, you know, like the old white Dutch clovers that people used to, we still, and that's probably 50 or 60 years ago, that was planted for cattle forages. Like it's all over Shimola, and yeah. it grows back every single year. You know, so it's in the white clover species to be able to do some of that. Mm-hmm. Just is it are they drought? Do they make it through the the severe droughts? I don't personally see how he's done it without a little aid of water. Now I know he's brilliant at keeping the soil chemistry right and fertilizing and lime. And, yeah, I asked him. He's going to come in a few weeks and tell us some of his clover secrets. Yeah. So you guys might want to come in here and listen yeah. as well. He's really really well, good. He, he's he's but, as good but, as I know. I want to circle back though when when we go back to Acorns, uh, Lanny always his eyes twinkle when we say Acorns. Man, I mean, it's mine just, too. So, yeah, yeah, well, your mine. eyes twinkle about every one of these subjects, Toxie. So, <laughs> but but guys, the the I'm just Toxie brings up clover, and and then I'm circling back to this mass crop because it, it just seems like it is so important to the whole landscape. Now I'm thinking about turkeys. Oh, and yeah. you know, let's not forget squirrels. We all love squirrel hunting, but I, I, I'm just kind of it, it just makes me pause at just how important that is. Because if there's a year when we don't have any, what happens? Well, and then you got the hog problem on top of it too, because it seems like those guys Good are coming point. to the bottom and wiping out. They everything. are wiping so, them out. That's what the do they eat? You know, post rut. You know, same thing with turkeys. How do they have something to get them through the spring? So, I, I would think you know on a on a what what. What a landowner could do uh, to manage for years where you don't have a good mast crop is to manage the rest of your habitat to have native food sources, you know, the early successional type stuff, all the, all the good weeds and things um, in addition to that. I mean, if you're putting all your money in on oak trees, one, you're missing out on, on cover. Uh, yeah. but uh, and, and Dudley, you might want to spend some time on and variety is hugely important too you know the there's two predominant you know was the black and the white oak and, and how yeah, the reds the reds and the whites you know so you really do need a mix of those because i believe you correct i mean i'm telling your story here but the red oaks are, are are more hardy they can make it through the winter and still be a food source in the spring right because of little um, tannins in them too. yeah i mean deer love eating acorns in the fall if they're there but uh but we, what about th- those turkeys in February and early March yeah. that are scratching up those little willow well, and water and you, cherry bark eggs? I mean, we, you and the nursery, they have species that start dropping in August. Yeah. yeah. And we have some that hang on till almost February. That's right. So, you know, you can, you can, like everything else, man, that diversity of what you plant can be so critical way down the road. So at y'all's deer pens, where y'all do all this this research, if y'all took a five gallon bucket of different acorns out, could would y'all see a preference to them? And would they, since those deer don't have access to them, do they immediately know what they are and go to them? They they pretty much love any acorn you bring in. Yeah, I haven't done personal studies myself, uh, but uh, Mariah, Mariah, yeah, yeah. Mariah's three years ago, I believe now. Um, they were all selected. There were some that the deer would go to a little earlier or a little before others, but they ate every one of them. So they're all good. And, and the way, Bobby, to, to think about your, your management for this is we got a, a, a good mass year and two bad or two good in a row is I keep thinking about our brothers. 
and the advice he gave about range management way back mm-hmm. when. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, of course, he's in South Texas, and you're managing cattle and deer. you got to worry about the drought years. And you might have two or three years in a row and then a, a good rain year. And he always says, manage your cows and your deer based on the drought year. Yep. So you're managing your numbers where they can live through the drought year uh-huh. and they flourish in quality mm-hmm. on the uh-huh. good years. Mm-hmm. But but you can't automatically raise the number of cows you have on the good year and then have them starve on the drought year. And I think that's, that, that's why we're always preaching about matching that deer density with your habitat quality and your wildlife populations become kind of resilient to these annual fluctuations we see. Isn't that called K? Or carrying capacity? It is. Okay. okay. Carrying I, capacity. I actually remembered something from school. Did you go to class? Did you go to class? <laughs> hey, what question? You know it all. That's the guy I know and love. The, the preference study you were re- referring to on acorns, was it just acorns or were there also, was there corn involved and everything else? I just, just acorns. Just acorns, just to see what species that they prefer. <clears> That's exactly And right. we assume the white oak was obviously the one. Well, they ate them all. They, they said all. They, they ate them all. all. They didn't really. Hmm. Yeah, and, you know, think about it. it tastes better to me, the, some of them, they all vary. The species vary in the amount of tannins. But when it comes to you know deer eating it, they're already adapted to eating things with tannin. Right. And and so it, a little more tannin, a little less tannin, they're they're not going to worry so much about how bitter it tastes because just get it in the gut. I, 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 my only, you know, we can't interview deer, but I think part of it is like. Um, how hard it what's the return on investment here mm-hmm. so is it they've got to work for like five minutes to crunch open a big old heavy bur oak mm-hmm. to get a little piece out of the middle or versus a thin paper shell you know swamp chestnut or something i think part of it they might be more attracted to you know less work more yeah they can get more to eat or, or whatever's closer to yeah. cover you know yeah. there, there's yeah. probably for a sure, lot of different for sure that variables they they think i mean you know water oaks are not one of the they're a pretty high tannin acre, and they're little, they're bitter. But I've heard them crunching oh, on them like they eat, the, they eat the whole acre in a lot yeah. of cases. They just crunch up the whole thing. They love them. So, yeah. guys, y'all are sitting over there at Mississippi State studying all this stuff, and while y'all's watch is going on right now, so to speak, over the wildlife of Mississippi, these wild pigs have just, they're a plague that's happening. That's that's got to just make Bronx's got to make you pull your hair out. I, I would, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> are we in the good old days of deer hunting right now? Are they behind us? Are they in the future? What? Mm. Ooh, well, we're getting deep up in here. Everywhere's different. Uh, <laughs> depends. <laughs> yeah, it does depend. I, I'll give my two cents, and I'll, I'll let Steve give his. Um, it, it does depend on where you're at in the state, in the southeast, etc. But yeah, we, we have more challenges now. And so we think back in the, the 80s and mm-hmm. 90s, and depending on where you're at in the southeast, but remember the, the first sky is falling, that, oh, my gosh, everything's over, was coyotes. They're eating all our fawns. And in some places, they're eating a lot of fawns. But, mo- but we've kind of worked through it. We know how to manage around that, et cetera. And then we add pigs, on top of that, in a lot of places, we got a lot of, of issues with pigs, and it's becoming more and more of a problem. But the big one that scares me the most is now we've got CWD. Yep. Yeah. And so when I think of CWD, that is when I really, the, the pigs bothered me and, and the coyotes, not so much. But I didn't really think the good old days were behind us with just pigs and coyotes. But now when you add in 
CWD in some of these places. In those places, I think the good old days may be behind them. Mm. Mm. And, mm. and I'm going to be a little more philosophical in that there's been problems all through our uh, the last 100 years with, with deer in particular and, and, and wild turkey too. Uh, 75 years ago, there were no deer to hunt. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's a, that's a big problem. There's no deer on the landscape. And we got over that and we fixed it and we learned, you know, hey, we've got a lot of deer now. And, you know, each problem is, look, we have to look at it as, well, it's just something we have to learn to deal with. We can fix it as best we can. And then we just have to, we have to remember the love of hunting doesn't change just because you have some problems. Yeah, you have to work a little harder, you know, deal with pigs and and, and uh, the CWD world where you in a CWD management zone. You have to change how you do things. You have to manage your expectations. But it's still you still can love going out and sitting in the woods and and hearing the as they're walking through the woods and and you know busting those twigs and leaves and and getting all excited and and then it ends up being a squirrel (laughs) (laughs) armadillo (laughs) but but what we have to do is just remember that love and don't spend so much time thinking about all the problems absolutely amen from the choir loft right here yeah absolutely well said yes i hope everybody listened to that or they play it back and listen it over again that was really well said Hmm. i'm gonna let that one soak in just a little bit because it's so yeah, that, that's very. Well, it goes back important. to the thing we, you know, we only get the moment we're living in right now. Let's make the most out of it. And don't Daniel said that that sense of wonderment. I keep going back wonderment. to that at that time. Right. Let's don't lose our 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 childlike sense of wonderment for getting to go out in the woods and that you know, like when I was a kid and I did hear that little oh, leaves yeah. crunching, everything I heard or saw, a big buck was going to show up any minute. It was so much more fun than I was thinking about all the problems. You know, yeah, <laughs> good point. Yeah. I want to share. A, an analogy that uh, Kervin Richard from Benton County Gate shared with me uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about, you know, the problem with the CWD in, in a high prevalence management zone area where you know, three or four out of 10 deer you shoot are going to be positive. And I said, how do you deal with that, Kervin? He said, you know, I grow a vegetable garden every year and I don't get to eat every tomato and every cucumber and every piece of squash that's grown. Some of it rots on the vine and some of it, you know, gets eaten by other animals and insects and all that. But it doesn't keep me from growing my vegetables every year. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the process of growing vegetables. And same with hunters. We got to get over this, you know, where it's so inbred to us. Somebody, you know, our fathers, our uncles, our grandfathers, taught, you know, burned into us. You kill it, you eat it. And it's just this religious belief in the hunter and if you can't eat it because as cwd and you have to throw it away it's like oh my goodness i can't hunt anymore i can't deal with this well we got to get over that that's another one of these yeah because you're doing you're actually you're doing more help than anything you could do to take that one out exactly (laughs) exactly taking the positive animals off the landscape is helping to manage the disease Mm -hmm. and we just have to say well okay I, i did something positive for disease management. And I'm going to go out there and spend another morning, another afternoon, or maybe all day long and, and enjoy that hunting experience and get another one. And if that one's not positive, I'm going to enjoy eating it. Mm-hmm. So well said. Yeah. Uh, on that note, kind of random, do you think they'll ever come up with like a rapid test? Yes. They're working on it. Okay. Now, is it going to be in five years or 10 years? I don't know. But people are working on it because it's it's an identified issue. Interesting. 
Okay. Yeah, you know what? You guys are dealing with some heavy subjects. But thank goodness that people like you are out there doing this and, uh, right. and studying it and, and communicating. What, what, Steve, that's just was great words. And, you know, we, we've, uh, we, we, we hadn't got to hear you say that as much as we should have, and I'm glad, glad that you explained that, and our listeners will get that, and it oh, will it make hit, sense. It hit home with me, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. that's how I define myself. It's like a lot of problems in life. You know, that, that CWD thing, that's not that big a problem for me, you know. It's not that big a problem for anybody until it's a problem until it's in your world. <laughs> yeah, and then it's, it's a, a major big problem. problem. Yep. That's, That's right. right. So have we seen more advancement? I mean, last I've heard Benton County and some of the Northern counties, but it's spreading it's everywhere. Spreading. Yeah. Period. There's no stopping the spread nationwide. Really? Yeah. It may slow where it's managed better, but my understanding is really no stopping. Right. And, per se, you and, know? and the best thing you can do is find it early. And the only way you're going to find it early is test, even though you don't think you have That's it. Right. Yeah. That's right. You got to test, test, and then test again. And and just because you, oh, I te- I've talked to people. Oh, I, I tested my first deer last year, and it was it was not negative, so I didn't bother testing anymore the rest no, of the year. No. And then the next year, oh, I got it now. Well, if you tested the year earlier, and, and all your neighbors were testing every deer, you'd find it sooner. And the, it's it's. And another quote I'm going to analogy I'm going to use here is William McKinley, who's the deer coordinator for the state of Mississippi. He says, CWD is a lot like cancer. The sooner you find it, the more you can do to manage it. Right. If you wait until you got 10 or 15% or 10 out of uh, one out of 10 deer that you shoot or two out of 10 deer that you shoot are positive, you're past the point of being able to do much with it. It's just going to be living with it as it increases in, in prevalence. But if you can find it when it's one out of 100 deer, then you go back and you are, that was a positive doe. And where did I shoot that doe? You go back and you find that family unit and you shoot every one of them because the most, the greatest chance of finding a positive deer is where another positive deer was. Right. Oh, yeah. And so if you find it in a doe, Go kill the rest of her family unit, Oof. every one of them, if you can. Mm. And then uh, <clears throat> maybe do a little bit to help the spread, reduce the spread moving forward. So get your, get them. T- I know I said I was going to do it last year and didn't, but I'm testing this year. <laughs> it sounds like Hayden would be a big help. If yeah, he It's <laughs> not like I'm going to have to carry a lot of deer to get tested. This is a deep subject. Yeah, you know? it's tough, we, it's we, tough we, to we, talk you know, about. We, we probably do, need to devote a whole podcast to see that. But in short, if guys are in areas, no matter what part, what state you're listening from, if you're in an area that is positive, it, you need to do whatever the state is asking you to do is basically what I'm hearing from you guys. And I think there's some travel uh, restrictions going across state lines guys we need to make sure we adhere to that kind of stuff and do our part to try to Absolutely. help understand this like Toxie said if you don't have it you don't want it no. once you get it it's not the end of the world just do what your state agency recommends they're they're using the best science available it's not some conspiracy <laughs> uh, you know, they don't want it any any more than you want it no. they want it probably less than you want it because yeah. they understand what it's going to do yeah so uh it's not a Help your state help you. Listen to them. And it's free. Getting yep. your deer test, it's not going to cost the hunter anything. That, that just drop the That's in Lanny's budget, Doc. Hey, no doubt about it. <laughs> Lanny would like it better if y'all would pay him if, if, if there's any way <laughs> yeah. you could do that. Well, the state will in Mississippi and in other states, they'll pay taxidermists 5 or $10 per sample. Hmm. So if you're in the taxidermy business, Lanny, you can... And right. make some money on that. I'm in the tenderloin business. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know this has been so good. I think, Dilly, I think this was a great point. Now, since, since we've been hearing some really interesting things out of 
Dr. Steve Damaris that you rapid fire some questions. At oh, him. yeah. So, oh, so, yeah. You may not know about this, but since the last time you were here, we've developed this thing that we call rapid fire. And it's brought to you by our friends at Springfield Armory. They make some fantastic pistols. You're probably familiar with them. But Dudley come, has come up with some questions, and he's going to just shoot them to you as quick as he can. Well, you know the old thing about age versus beauty. Don't you want to ask Bronson? Well, well we've he's no, already been through yeah. the ringer. Oh. Yeah. We don't, there's not I've much else about fire. Bronson we don't know. We can't even decide <laughs> who's age and who's beauty. So, Mike, if we do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, go All ahead. Right. I'm ready for you. Um, I got my catcher's mitt here. And you can, you can choose either one or you can say neither. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, not or, or pass. A or few pass. neither's, not not too many. Well, yeah, keep the neither. All right. Are you ready, Doctor Steve? This isn't like Family Feud. It's not a no. Gun. <laughs> no, we don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you ready? Shoot. Uh, deer, typical or non-typical? My personal preference. Sure. Typical. Dove hunt or duck hunt? Duck. Mountains or ocean? Mountains. Is it a crop or is it a crawl? You pronounce it like oh, in a turkey. Tur- uh, it's it's the crop. Um, acorn or acorn? Acorn. Lightning bugs or fireflies? Fireflies. Broccoli or green beans? Broccoli. Choose one to go into the woods. Snake chaps or permethrin? <laughs> permethrin. <laughs> no doubt. Surf or turf? <laughs> uh, surf. Napa Valley or Sonoma? Give me a red wine. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Both. Red. Uh, whitetail hunt, Iowa or Montana? Uh, Mississippi. Hey. Boom. Hey, look at Killed it. All right. Finally, ice cream or fro-yo? Ice cream. What is fro-yo? <laughs> I don't know. He's from, <laughs> listen, he's from Mississippi State. He'd got fired if he said anything besides ice cream. That's true. He got the world's best ice cream over there. If you hadn't had it, it's so good. And cheese. Oh, oh yeah, man, absolutely. cheese is unbelievable. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what. I just I'm, hear the slang from my kids, you know, fro-yo, frozen yogurt. All right. Oh, okay. I got you. Anyway. Yeah. Well, you did well. Very good. Did I pass? I, oh, I yeah. like how you leaned into it. You sat up and leaned into he's it. Ready. He didn't take, yeah. he didn't take him long. <laughs> he's boom. ready to play. That was rapid-fire answers, too. I like that Mississippi answer. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that, that was good. So, uh, look, while, while we're here, we've got a question for both of y'all. Mm-mm. Y'all can thought you were going to escape. Didn't y'all, you? y'all can you know ask each other, and your lifeline is toxic. He's at the end of the oh table. Lord. The other guys know about this question. <laughs> so, so what we're going to ask you a question. If you get it right, one of our listeners wins a prize. And Richie, would you tell us about what we're doing here? All right. So we're playing for, for uh, poor boy twenty three. Oh, he left us a review. Hey, man. So he's got a chance to win. What's he going to win? And so he gets uh, right out of Toxie's closet a Stanley Thermos. Oh, Boom. Yeah. Okay. Probably shouldn't have said that with Toxie sitting in here today, but that's where we got this. That's where I got this one. That's where, that's where Laney got his. <laughs> All right. So All you right. guys, got, y'all can team up now. Don't just immediately blurt out. You got to think about this. Okay. Yeah. All right. What was the first SEC school to wear a major camo company's camo on their uniform? The first. The first SEC school to wear a major camo company's camo on their uniform. This is not to be confused with, like, the first team to win a national championship or anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no. Well, but this team did. Uh, no, well, I'm not going to say anything. So. <laughs> You're leading. You're leading. <laughs> yep, yep. Leading the witness. Bronson's saying bigger... We're talking about the first. Who is the first that did this? Could it? I mean, I would think it would be Mississippi State University. 
Well, that of one course. slipped out. Of yeah. course it was. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. You remember that, Toxie? The, when the base, that, yeah. yeah. Of course you remember that. Everybody, the, everybody, I thought you were saying football team, but obviously sports team. Yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, team. Yes. yeah. Team. Well, I didn't mean to confuge you down there. but uh, <laughs> well, I was there. Toxie threw out the pitch. That was an exciting day. That was four, four or five years ago. No yeah. longer than that. Was it? Co- Coach yeah. Cohen was still there. Okay. And Mr. Fox was walking around on the field. That's so right. That's yeah. Like, I, I have a hat years from ago. that night. Yep, I do too. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I have a jersey from that I night. remember worrying about you throwing that pitch, but you threw a strike. I practiced for an hour. <laughs> 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 and you threw it from the mound. You didn't scoot up like some people do. I, look, we've, I, you know, I think we've learned. Lanley, what have you learned this week? I, I could, every time the guys are in here, I learn more and more. So, And, and that's the fascinating thing about, you know, white-tailed – Dear to me, you and being gamekeepers, you never, you can never, uh, it's never ending, so it's always giving back to you. Bronson, have you got any kind of factoid like you did last time about the do, the, the doe of twins and the 20,000 calories that a day? That was amazing. Yeah. We're still talking 20, about that. 20,000 calories a day. Golly, I'm, I'm not prepared this time, Bobby. Yeah, okay. I didn't, I didn't uh, come with that in hand. I'm sorry. That's all right. Dudley, Steve, you, you learn? may have lectured today, though, and may have something from class that's right I, on I the didn't, list. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dudley, did you learn anything today? Um, I learned that uh, deer eat velvet. Other other deer's velvet. I, I didn't realize I su- that. Suspected that, but didn't. And Fawn's placenta. I never well, on that one. Either. That was going to be my yeah new fact I had not heard of before. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Sounds delicious. <laughs> and nutritious. <laughs> hey, I've, I've actually sampled a rumen. And found the placenta in the doe's rumen before. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. That's heavy. You know, that is heavy. You'd really have to know what you were looking at there to tell, to tell what that <laughs> yeah. was. It's not something that just floats out real easy. So once it gets in there, it stays for a while. And this was during the, the hunting season. I was sampling rumens. Wow. And it was still in there. Hmm. Wow. And you got poison ivy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that reminds poison me ivy. of the movie Alien. From, from the rumen. Yeah. Wow. If you're allergic to Oh, you got poison ivy from the rumen. Yeah. yeah sampling the... And this was not during hunting season. This was during the summertime collections. And I was gloved up, too. But I ended up, oh, my forearms were just covered in it. I had to go to the hospital to get a steroid shot. God. Yeah, because yeah, they're eating a lot of poison, poison ivy in the summertime. And, <laughs> and <you're>, <laughs> How about that? So, Well, Dudley, have you got a Ask Dudley prepared for us? I do. Let's, let's knock that out real um, quick. So I was talking to Cody Kaysen and his son Kaysen on the phone and they were just asking a lot of general questions about chestnuts. And uh, it inspired me to uh, talk about how to prepare chestnuts. You know, we like to plant them or whatever for wildlife, but uh, humans can eat them too. You know, I, I sang a song about that in our, in our Christmas album. There's a album. very famous song, song about, about, yeah. about a year yeah. Christmas album. A beautiful rendition of chestnuts roasting over an open fire. But the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own front door. But um, I forgot so you had a Christmas album. Real quickly, uh, how to do this? Uh, you you obviously collect your chestnuts, um, and then you you want to go through and make sure they feel dense and they're you know when you squeeze on them it's it's hard, not hollow, um, and then you need to score them. So uh, huh. I got this off a YouTube video, and it and it works well. But uh, just get you some of those fancy kitchen scissors, shears, like, shears, mm-hmm. like you would cut a chicken open with or something, 
and uh, you stick the point in there and then make a, a long cut uh, lengthwise from. So you actually uh, want to go through from, the meat, just not. Not through skin. the meat, just through the shell just through from the shell. side to side. And you want a little more than half of the nut to, to be scored. Right. Uh, and, and then you soak them for, I don't know, two, three, four hours. Uh, and then you turn the oven on to 350. Now, help, help me out. Sorry about it. We're scoring it to get it out of the little prickly you're thing? Scoring, you're scoring. Well, you're, no. You're, it's out of the prickly thing. Okay, it's okay, out okay. of the burr. Then you you've got score, the nut. Scoring the edge. You up. make a slice yeah. more than halfway. Of, okay. You know, so the soaking can get so in. So the water can get in. Oh, okay. And once right. you've processed it or cooked it, you can huh. get the meat out more that, easily. Do you brine it or just straight tap water? Uh, water. I've, okay. I've heard of folks using wine or things like that. Mm, but, that's uh, a little yeah. pork. Um, Sangria. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, soak them in a bowl of water for a few hours and then get your oven to 350 and put them on uh, a sheet pan scored side up. Do you have parchment paper on that sheet pan? Uh, you can if okay, you want sorry. to. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, you put them in there for 20 minutes or so. You can put a few ice cubes in there to provide a little bit more humidity or spray some water on them a couple times during the process. Um, and then turn the oven up to 400 to 450. How for, long were we at 350? You minutes. were at for 20 minutes. Okay. Then turn it up and do it for 10 to 15 minutes more. And then you take them out and you put them in like a Pyrex bowl that's lined with a moist cloth. And then you cover it with the moist cloth mm -hmm. and, and let them sit there for another 10 or 15 minutes. And that helps loosen that outer shell even more. So you get the meat out. And, uh, and then you, you uh, while they're still warm, you, you take the meat out. <laughs> and you can do all kinds of things. That may be another Ask Dudley. But yeah. uh, you can eat them right there. Some people actually boil them. But this me method worked well for me and, and had the most reviews. Probably most had reviews. better flavor than boiled, too, I bet. Um, yeah. Yeah. It would kind of condense the kinda flavor. Kind of like steamed whatever shrimp or steamed vegetables have right. more flavor than boiled. Um, hmm. And uh, we might could talk to Michael Hunter about some of this. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, well, you hungry. can make noodles. You can make flour. stuffing just like yeah. a traditional dressing. You can make flour. But what you don't eat on the spot, you can freeze them. Like vacuum seal them mm -hmm. and, and freeze them, and they last for a long time. Well, well, mine is actually fruiting in my yard, so I'm going to get some of those dudes off of there. Yep. And uh, people talk about making acorn flour, but this is nope. this is a lot easier. They're a lot easier to process. Yep. So. And you want to tell, you know, we're, I guess we can make the announcement that we're sorry we're out of chestnuts for the year. Yes. Um, <laughs> do you want to explain that? Well, we uh, grew a lot of very good chestnuts this year, and then somebody came in and bought them all. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's the story to it. We're probably going to try to push out some pre-order stuff maybe to get on the list for next year. Uh, but the good news is we're uh, ordering more seed than ever, so we'll have an even bigger and better crop next year. That's right. So sorry for the guys that uh, weren't able to get some this year. Dudley, I, it was like I was listening to Julia Childs over there print, 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 give a recipe. Yeah. <laughs> we're so, we're so uh, yeah. Thank well, you, Mr. Know-it-all. All right, we got through that. So... Uh, <laughs> We look forward to uh, the further explanation of how to eat those chestnuts at some point. I, I think we ought to leave them for the deer to eat myself. Well, you know, that's yes, just me. Sure you but. can. So, look, guys, we've really enjoyed having y'all. Uh, people need to go to the – is it the at, deer, at Mississippi State Deer – what's that handle there? I'm, I'm going to mess that up. Uh, at MSU Deer Lab. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, MSU Deer Lab, y'all got a lot of interesting stuff going on, and the guys can learn a lot listening and following y'all. So. And for the older listeners like myself that don't know what the at means, uh, MSUDeerLab.com, just a regular old website. Mm-hmm. Hey, we like right. those too. Yeah. And just search MSU Deer Lab, whatever social media platform. And I like. always want to plug our podcast, Deer mm-hmm. University. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Listen to the one with Harry Jacob, Dr. Harry Jacobs from the other day. I enjoyed yeah. that. So that was good. It's so awesome. I just got to say this because they, their life is about research or something they love. And we were talking about research. Actually, I was talking about asked to speak about research importance with in front of the big crowd at NWTF. And my analogy was like it reminds me of that famous old saying that is so true. Is like if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there the same thing if we don't know if we can't quantify if we can't learn we're going to just take this whole thing in the ditch one day and so um, you can't take your hat off enough and be too grateful for the job that they do and actually historically talk about dr jacobson he was a pioneer nationally yeah. mm-hmm. and but the the emphasis from our whole school over there on it i mean you know you no matter what great university you are. You can't be tops in the nation, but in a few things, there's so many great schools. But we are in their department, and it's something I'm really proud of having been an alumni. No doubt about it. Me too. Big, Big time. Guy. Yeah. Yep. You got Stick it. your thumbs yeah. and suspenders, guys. Go ahead and smile, Bronson. There it is. That's a horn. <laughs> and this hadn't just started. It's about my dad. I, I drove through the parking thing. lot at Thompson uh, yesterday, dropping some seed off at the seed lab to get tested. Oh, good. And uh, man, it just looks beautiful. Y'all have all those natives planted everywhere. That's incredible. Big old oak trees. There's uh, mulch everywhere. You're not really mowing it. You know, it's just right. It uh, it fits the bill. Yeah. Y'all are leading by example in, in many building. ways. Wonderful place to work. It sure yeah. is. Hmm. Well, good. Well, thank y'all so much for being here. We really My appreciate pleasure. y'all dr- driving over. And Richie, uh, so guys, on with the the Gamekeepers Television Show on Tuesday nights, have we got a new one coming up this? Yeah, our next episode lineup is uh, is our Dove Management episode, uh, sowing the seeds of success. That's yeah. going to be a good one. That's a good, that is a good. So one. Yeah. I like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. I like those Catch. dove birds. Yeah, so guys, uh, catch the show on Tuesday nights, the Gamekeepers of Mossy Oak. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your yeah. friends and leave us a review. You might win something yeah. out of Toxic's Closet yeah. down there. And so <laughs> I guess that's that. it. Anybody else got anything to add? I'm just going to change the lock on my closet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, say goodbye, Dudley. Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.